Well, we are in the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 15. And if you could turn there in your Bible with me. Uh, If you remember, we were last time uh, discussing uh, in in that section where we started in chapter 15, the the, uh, vine and the branches. And you remember that uh, parabolic um, illustration there that started in verse 1. I am the true vine. Jesus said, and my father is the vine dresser. And he, he uh, used that as the jumping off point to, to illustrate the relationship that uh, exists between Christ and his, and his people. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And um, you remember this uh, illustration that there are some that appear to be uh, part of the vine, but really aren't. They're not bearing fruit. They're really dead branches. And Jesus says that, that they will be taken away. But there are other branches that need to be pruned, right? So that they will become more productive. They will be able to be more uh, fruitful in their, in their fruit bearing. And this whole illustration just teaches the necessity of believers to abide in him for life and fruitfulness. And so just want to remind you, this is the, the context of where we were last time. And, and uh, this is all still part of the exposition here today. It's still in the, in, in the, in the background. But anyways, Jesus is the true vine, as we already mentioned. His heavenly father is the vine dresser, right? And... Um, Again, the process of of being pruned can be painful at times, right? And all of us uh, have experienced some of those times already in our life, right? Where um, we um, we go through certain amounts of discipline, certain amount of trials, and things that God uses that that really are not fun to go through, right? I went through a few of those in recent years when um, my, my father, my mother both died of cancer within a year and a half of each other during COVID. And just when I thought, you know, uh, okay, well, that was, that was a tough period and we're going to get a chance to take a step back. And then my wife was diagnosed with, with cancer uh, just a few months later, and we went right into into that. And, you know, all of those things were not fun to go through, but they were necessary as part of the pruning process that God would have for me uh, in order to teach me uh, to, to abide in him and to, and to cling to him and to love him. And it is through those painful processes that will ultimately bring about more glory to our heavenly father, the, the vine dresser. You know, we left off last time with the significant thought that fullness of joy comes through obedience to Jesus. That was in verse 11. You remember that? These things I have spoken to you, and, and, and these things, and it was, it was piggybacked in verse uh, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. And so the these things refers to the the fact that of keeping God's commandments. And he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
And fullness, that was the last thought that we had in our message, is that fullness of joy comes through obedience to Jesus. The life of obedience to Jesus is ultimately where you will find your, your fullness of joy and the satisfaction that goes with it. So with that, we're going to uh, pick up our exposition there in verse 12. But before we do so, uh, let me read that in its entirety and then we'll pray. So verses 12 to 17 says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open the word this morning, let it minister uh, to our hearts. Father, particularly as we look at this portion, let let it move us to a place where our love for you would inform our love for other people in, in the church and even unbelievers outside of it. So, Father, grow us this morning. Let your word penetrate our hearts and help us, Lord, uh, to be engaged and not to disassociate this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, our outline here for this morning is pretty simple. There's two major points. Jesus' new commandment which we've uh, discussed uh, before um, in our series on the Gospel of John, and uh, Jesus' friends. I like how we integrated the, the, you know, the friend song today you know, about Jesus. That was a good, good job there, Jace. So, so we'll, we'll start there in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So again, we're still in the exposition of the vine and the branches, and the thought transitions from fullness of joy through obedience to Jesus to what that obedience entails. The nuance in the Greek text is found in the present tense of the believers to love one another, as opposed to the aorist tense in reference to Jesus' love for his disciples. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. What, what the, the nuance here is that believers are to make it a practice. It's not a one-off. Like you love somebody once and then that's, you've kind of done your duty. No, this is, this is a regular practice of the believer to love one another uh, as his uh, normal practice. In the same manner that Christ loved us, the aorist kind of views his love sort of as a snapshot. Uh, in his sacrificial death, that kind of becomes the jumping off point of how Christ loved us, viewing Christ's love in that one snapshot in his sacrificial death. So we are to continually love each other in the same way that Christ loved us in his sacrificial death. Now, granted, Jesus hasn't died for them yet. That's uh, actually just hours away from this point, but it will become the defining act of love for them as they carry out this command 
throughout their apostolic ministry. So going forward, right, this is going to define for them what love is. This command isn't anything brand new. You remember a few chapters earlier, chapters 13, verses 34 to 35, the new commandment that Jesus gave to you, that you love one another. Now, that's not new either, right? The newness of the part was, as I have loved you, right? The, the, the love is going to be defined by God incarnate in how he loved them. And it was, if you remember, also foreshadowed and symbolized uh, when Jesus washed their feet, right? It was, a, it was, it was more than, ju- it, was, it wasn't anything less than a foot washing, but it was more than a foot washing as well. It showed their, his love for his disciples, and it foreshadowed the ultimacy of his love in his death for their sins. But it bears repeating again and again that a big part of what it means to obey Jesus is to love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way that Jesus loved his disciples. Now that sets the standard incalculably high. One that can never be attainable by even the best of believers who are tainted by sin. And yet that is the standard by which we are to strive after, not a lesser standard. You know, the standard isn't your pastors, right? It's not us. It's not your teachers. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. All of which may provide great examples for you. But at the end of the day, all of us are flawed. Everyone in that category is flawed at best. The standard is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so any temptation to compare ourselves to others, right? Like, well, you know, I love others better than so-and-so. I love better than this guy, right? There's always somebody that you can compare yourself to where you're going to be at the, you know, the, the, the better side of the comparison. But when other people aren't the standard, all of that gets derailed. So let's not lower the standard so that it becomes more attainable, uh, subjectively speaking, and let's not discriminate against those whom we perceive as less lovable because they are less desirable, less worthy, or less advantageous for us to love. Look, one thing I want to mention about this is that if our love as Christians is selective, then we're not carrying out this command and we're living in disobedience to Jesus, right? We're not called to discriminate as we love, right? We're, we're called to love indiscriminately. You know, as Christians, love isn't optional, as if God gives us a choice to love or not to love, right? Well, it's up to you. Just love if you feel like loving, right? Love those who you want to love or love those who um, you feel moved to love. And if you don't, eh, no, no problem. No, that's, that's not on the table for us. It's not optional, right? Um, our calling card as Christians is to love others in a way that reflects the self-sacrificial love that Christ had for us, which is going to be spelled out more fully for us in the next verse. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that at this point, that it's utterly contradictory to be 
doctrinally and theologically correct, while at the same time behaving in an unloving manner towards others, right? It's a warning for churches like ours that stresses the right doctrine, the right theology to kind of major there, but then minor on the um, application of loving other people. Because look, if our theology is leading to constant arguments and contentiousness with others, which I would submit to you is very common on Twitter, on Facebook, on the internet. It, to me, it, it's, it's, um, there's a disconnect there that you're, you're arguing about who, you know, about the Lord and his word and right theology, but doing it in such a contentious way that you're kind of calling other people out in a way that I don't think you would do in person. But it's easy to hide behind your computer screen, and uh, and it emboldens us, right, to say things honest, you know, on the internet that we would never say to a person's face. But I, I don't think that's the right way to go about it, right? It, our theology should not lead to unnecessary contentiousness, and so I would submit to you that our theology in those case, in those cases, isn't informing our practice, but is only feeding our egos. I encourage all of us uh, to study God's word. I'd be the first to tell you, study God's word and constantly pursue him in your knowledge. But all of that is meant to lead you to love God and his people more, not less. If that's not happening, or you're loving God and his people more, then there's something fundamentally wrong uh, with how you are pursuing your relationship with the Lord. I think that's why there's so many disconnects even, uh, and it feels like, um, especially lately, almost every week we're hearing stories about guys that we know uh, that, um, you know, whether we went to seminary with or fellow pastors, guys that have even filled this pulpit here at IBC, who have um, crashed uh, morally in their ministries, who are preaching the word of God faithfully in their churches while carrying on years-long affairs. And you wonder, how could that be? How could you preach from the pulpit, right? And, and honestly, I could tell you, it's not as hard as you think. You have the ability to, to, you know, to preach the word of God. You have the ability to open the word for others. So you just, you just bifurcate. One is your job, and the other is how you live. And when you get to the point where the two are not the same, where you could separate it so you can come in the pulpit... You're like an actor in a movie. You could just go up, you preach, you say all the things that uh, you're supposed to say. You climb out of here and then you go and live your life the way you want, right? It's not as uncommon as you think. And, and it's seemingly, uh, you know, uh, it's funny in the office, you know, recently we were just talking about all of these moral failures that seem to be uh, just constantly around us. And it's like, man, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. It's crazy. But anyways, that's not, again, that's a disconnect. That's not normal. And, you know, our love for God and our love for others is, is part and parcel of what it means to have a relationship with God in the first place. You know, before we move on, I want you to notice something here in the text. That Jesus' love commandment, serves as bookends in our passage. Notice here, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, 
These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is what they call in, uh, in English an inclusio, right? It's uh, their bookends of the passage, right? And it's meant to show you that the material that's sandwiched in between, it's not meant to be kind of loose, you know, loosely individual saying, it all goes together, right? This is all uh, bookended. Um, and so all the material in between is one piece. All right. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You know, anyone can talk about how much they love another person, right? I love you to the moon and back is a popular expression. And, and it's a pretty grand claim, right? I love you to the moon and back. But at the end of the day, it's just a mere boast, right? Saying it doesn't make it true, right? Like, I'm not taking anyone in real life to the moon and back, right? And, and in, in real life, I, you know, if you think about it, what does that really mean, right? I love you to the moon and back. But in any case, it's a claim. It's just a, it's just a boast. It doesn't make it true by just saying that. Many a man has told his wife how much he loved her and how precious she is to him. And all the while, he's sleeping with other women, carrying on affairs in his, in his private life. So all that to say, words are not equivalent to actions. Jesus says that the greatest expression of love possible is seen, not in someone who talks about it, but who's willing to give up his most uh, precious possession, which is what? His life for the sake of another person. Now think about the relevance that this will have in just a very short time in the life of the disciples. Jesus is about to prove the excellence of his love as he goes to the cross. Again, that's just hours away. And it is there that he will give his life for his friends. You know, a friend refers to, to someone whom you are on intimate terms with, someone that you have a close relationship with, right? These are not like your friends on Facebook, right? You got, I see people that have a thousand friends on Facebook. I'm pretty sure you don't have a thousand friends in real life, right? But there are people that just, you know, ask to be added to you because they know this guy who knows you, who knows you, and so on and so forth. But a friend is someone that you actually have a close relationship to, that you're actually intimate with, right? That, that you pray for each other, that you talk to each other, that you know each other's businesses, business. And we'll talk more about the concept of friendship when we get to the next verse. So I'm going to lay that to the side uh, for just a moment. But notice, though, that that act of love on Christ's part was not meant to terminate at the cross, but was meant to be the principle, the example that believers were to then emulate, right? In other words, it wasn't just meant to, here's Christ's love and that's it, right? But here's Christ's love and now that becomes a template for his followers. We see this, by the way, in John's uh, first epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, 
Jesus demonstrated love for his disciples, that love, as I said, becomes the jumping off point for believers to carry out his command to us to love, therefore, one another. Or to put it another way, the love that God has for believers then becomes the love between believers. So if believers are to follow Christ's example, this would imply that we should be willing to lay down our lives for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's exactly what we read here. But we need to make the distinction here between Jesus's unrepeatable, once for all death for sin, and what we are called to do as believers on a daily basis. Now, I say that because we don't want to read this verse here in John, 1 John 3.16, as if John were saying that since Christ died for us, then let's all literally go out and die for each other. Because if that were the case, you could only fulfill this command one time. Right? Uh, No, the point that John is making is that we are to lay down our lives in the sense of self-sacrificially serving one another in response to how Christ self-sacrificially loved us. Notice the verb ought there. The verb ought emphasizes that this should be the believer's conviction or obligation. Obligation in the good sense, not in the bad sense. Like, oh, I ought to do it. No, this is our responsibility before the Lord. You know, few of us will ever get the chance to actually die for someone in the literal sense, but we are all to self-sacrificially give of ourselves to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But with that said, there may be that rare opportunity to literally lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially as persecution against Christians continue to escalate. But I just want to make the point that this command is broader than just that, right? We see another uh, verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, although it's certainly true that Christ would give his life for his friends, right? Talking to his disciples. It's also true that because of our sin, God considered us his enemies, And yet, despite that fact, God took action to love his enemies and send his son on their behalf in order to bring about reconciliation. And so God's love is the standard for what it means for us to love each other. You know, in saying all this, we recognize uh, just how much Christ loved us and also how difficult it is to mimic Christ's love. You know, as we mentioned earlier, the answer is never to lower the the bar, right? To lower the standard so that we can reach it. But to uphold the standard, reach for the standard, and then acknowledge when we fail, when we don't reach the standard. The, the, The standard is so high, and we are so weak, 
it should humble us to see just how far we fall short of Christ's perfect love. It isn't easy, right, to love in this biblical, Christ-honoring way. In fact, I think it is the hardest thing in terms of commands that, that God gives to us to love one another. It's, it's not easy. And so we are in constant need of Christ's grace in order to be committed to this ethic and fulfill Christ's command to love others in the same way that he loves us. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You know, as you think about what Jesus said, uh, this might have crossed your mind. You know, who are Jesus' friends? You know, who are the ones that have this intimate relationship with him? You know, first of all, let's understand the nuance of what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that obedience to Jesus is what makes them friends as if they have earned their status through their works. That's works righteousness, right? If that were true, then you'd become Jesus's friends if you try hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you're good enough, you could become Jesus's friends. That's not what he's saying here, right? So he's not saying that, okay? What he is saying is that obedience is what characterizes or distinguishes his friends. This means that being a friend of Jesus is different than your friendship to anyone else. Your other friendships aren't based on whether you obey them or not, or at, at, at least I hope they aren't. If they are, you're probably not in a very healthy friendship, okay? Because this only goes one way, right, with Jesus. But this one is like that. Okay, and it's not reciprocal. In other words, Jesus isn't your friend if he does what you command him, right? It's not reciprocal. It only works the other way. We're his friends if we do what he commands us. In fact, you know, it's interesting. There is no place anywhere in the entire Bible where God or Jesus is said to be the friend of anyone, only that this or that person, like Abraham in the Old Testament, Lazarus in the New Testament, is their friend, okay, but not the other way around. So from an Old Testament perspective, right, to be called a friend of God is very rare. Only Abraham had uh, that, um, that privilege, and yet Jesus opens up this privilege to all believers, let me ask you a question here this morning as you think about this. Are you Jesus's friend? You know, some of you already know the answer to that question because you have rejected Jesus with knowledge. You, you want nothing to do with him, and so you make no pretensions about being a Christian. You already know where you stand, and you know you aren't his friend, and so it's not um, a mystery to you. But there are others of you who might think that you are because you regularly come to church, you identify yourself as a Christian, right? Um, maybe your parents are Christian. And even you would even go so far as to defend Christianity if you were to talk to others and they were to attack Christianity. And still there are others of you 
who might think you're Christ's friend because, well, he's not my enemy, right? Um, I'm not openly antagonistic towards Jesus, right? And uh, look, I I have respect for the things of the Lord. I grew up in the church. I remember going to Sunday school and, and all of that. But you know, none of those things that we mentioned have any relevance as to whether you are Christ's friend or not. The only relevant question is really this, do you obey Jesus or not? Now, we're not talking about perfection, obviously. Only whether this is the consistent pattern of your life because he is actually the Lord of your life. You know, the scripture is replete with references to the fact that obedience is what marks characterizes the true believer. Again, it's not that that gains you the status, but once you're in that status, this is what you look like. We benefit from, uh, oh boy, that's little, huh? Okay, well, if you have uh, 2020, maybe you could see that. If not, just listen to me. But we benefit from Dr. Klink's explanation about this when he said this, there is a need in our churches today to redefine how we speak about obedience. We obey the commandments of God not to earn or keep our salvation, but to experience salvation. It's very helpful. Obedience is the response of the person who is saved, not perfect obedience, but a knowledge of what sin really is and an imperfect desire to live as life truly is in God through Christ and by the Spirit. That is... Obedience is to live life in humble submission to our Father as his children. Exhorting obedience is not legalism, but grace. It is giving life, I'm sorry, it is giving true life to people who truly need it. This focus on obedience should not eclipse grace, but magnify it. For our imperfect obedience will not only need to be surrounded and supported by grace, but in fact finds its source in grace, the obedience of Christ on our behalf. This, therefore, is true joy. Very helpful to to think that through about what it means to characterize the true believer. All right, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known. To you, What is uh, the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of a servant? This is the regular word for slave. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Well, probably the obedience element, right? Because if you think about it, if you were living in the first century, what made a slave a slave? Obedience, right? He had to do what you said. But yet the obedience element has already been stressed in the previous verse. Linking that with their friendship to Jesus. So that rules out the idea that obedience is a thing of the past, right? No, it's part and parcel of your friendship to Jesus. So then, what is it that sets apart a servant from a friend? Well, interestingly, Jesus says the difference is knowledge. But more than just mere knowledge, it's it's revelation, So think of it like this. Servants are simply told what to do 
but not necessarily why to do it, right? I doubt if you were living in the first century, I doubt many masters gave their uh, slaves commands and then subsequently explained to them the rationale behind why he told them to do it, right? He didn't say, hey, listen, I want you to do this. And here, let me tell you why you should do this, okay? And, and, and what? No, he just said, do this, do that, right? Get on it now, right? And, and the slave would have done it, right? For fear of displeasing his master. Um, Jesus' friends, however, are different in that they will now be privy to his thinking. And they will be obeying, that part doesn't change, but while being fully informed of Jesus' heart. Being informed of his plans, his motives, and his purposes. So, in one sense, you never stop being Christ's slave because obedience to him never stops. You know, that part will always stay the same, but your status has been upgraded. You're not a slave in status anymore. But being a friend isn't just an upgrade over being a slave, it's an even more elevated position than being called a disciple. Now, if you stop and think about the significance of this statement, Jesus' friends, his disciples, are the most privileged of any believers prior to this time because they were given insight from God that no other prophet, in fact, no other human being, had ever been given. They had a direct line about the Father's plan from his only son. Right? Who, who else had ever had this grand privilege of receiving from the, 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 the Son everything about the Father's plan? And just so that there's no misunderstanding, when Jesus says that he revealed to the disciples all that I have heard from my Father, he doesn't mean that he told them everything on this day, but he told them everything that they needed to know that was necessary for them at that particular time. There's still going to be more for Jesus to teach them later on before he goes back to heaven, but they wouldn't be ready to hear all of it yet. But everything that was necessary for now, he told them. But being treated as a friend, as opposed to a servant, is at least a big part of the reason why obedience to him produces fullness of joy and is not burdensome, as we discussed at the very tail end of our last message. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You know, with the statement, we're, we're back to the vine branches, fruit-bearing imagery, right? Now, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes as you're hearing Jesus here in the first century, right? How would you feel if Jesus had just disclosed to you that you were his friends, right? And therefore, you were more privileged than anyone who had ever come before you. Um, Do you think your ego would have been somewhat inflated hearing this kind of talk? I know mine would have been. I think the temptation was, was surely there for the disciples as well. 
And we know that the disciples were kind of given to that. We know on other occasions that some of the disciples were arguing with each other of who would be the greatest in the kingdom, right? So we know that they were not past all this. They were not beyond this kind of thinking. Well, you know, before any pride could swell in the hearts of the disciples, Jesus quells it by pointing out that the reason that they're privileged is not because you are inherently superior to anyone who ever came before you, but because of the mere fact that I chose you. It's not because of who you are, it's because of who I am and my decision to choose you. By the way, that was already different than what was customary in the first century. Because, you know, the teacher-student, you know, relationship, um, as far as that was concerned, disciples usually sought out their own rabbis. They attached them, they were urged to attach yourself to, to the teacher of your choosing, right? But it was never the other way around, where the teacher sought the disciple. But see, it's different with Jesus. He chose not only these men, but as we know, each and every person to be his disciple, and as we'll see here, for a very specific purpose. Although the application may seem obvious, I think it's worth uh, stating nonetheless. God didn't choose you or me because we were so great or that we influenced God's decision to choose us because as you see up on the screen here, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him, when did that take place, that, cho- that choosing? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were in no position to influence God's decision before the foundation of the world because we didn't exist before the foundation of the world. So this is certainly one of the most humbling truths in scripture as it really strikes at the core of our pride, believing either that we had the sense to choose Christ when so many others rejected him or that God chose us because we deserve to be chosen, right? Neither of those are true. God chose us in his son uh, out of reasons known only to himself, and you should thank God every day that he did so. We were chosen and saved solely due to God's grace, despite our sinfulness, and we can take no credit for our redemption. Yet, there's more to the story here than just the doctrine of election. Christ's choosing is closely linked to his appointing in this verse, which in the New Testament often has the idea of being set apart for a particular ministry, whether that be the work of an apostle, like in Acts 13, 47, or even the office of the elder, like in Acts 20, verse uh, 28. So the choosing and the appointing has direct relevance to the disciples' fruit-bearing. And so let's talk about this in more detail. You know, ordinarily in Scripture, the emphasis on a believer's salvation is linked 
to the believer's holy life. For example, in Titus 2, 11 to 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This emphasizes the fact that election is always to sanctification. And so if we don't see sanctification, we can be fairly certain that there isn't election either. Yet, that doesn't seem to be the point that Christ is making here. In this passage, Christ links the bearing of fruit with going. Meaning that this fruit is specifically related to missions or evangelism. So this has primary uh, reference, by the way, to the original apostles. Okay, so understand this is directly who he's speaking to, Jesus. But I, I want to say that this probably has a secondary application to all believers as well. In other words, strictly speaking, Jesus' words, yes, were directed to the apostles and has direct relevance to, to their ministry. Uh, even the success of their missionary endeavors, in fact, that's borne out in the book of Acts itself. And it shows that the, the, the means by, or the purpose to which they were chosen, it was fulfilled in that early church. But isn't it also true that Christ has chosen us to carry out the same responsibility of taking the gospel to the nations? So isn't the Great Commission our marching orders, as well as the apostles. So unless God has a different plan for us than he did for the apostles, I think the answer is yes. So the fruit for which the disciples were chosen, and all believers by extension, were to win new converts to Christ. And that these won't be superficial converts, but lasting or abiding fruit. You know, doesn't this tell us of the importance that missions and evangelism has for the church? You know, if we're explicitly told that Christ chose us for the sake of winning converts to Christ, shouldn't the church be pouring its energy and its resources into missions and evangelism? That's why IBC has always been committed to world missions. And even when finances have been lean, we've always been cautious not to cut our mission support. I think uh, most of you uh, already know that we currently support Ray and Shelley uh, in Japan. And in addition to that, we are doing missions exploration with uh, several other countries to see if we want to partner uh, with others who are... Um, at least in our estimation, that we believe are faithfully doing gospel ministry abroad, right? Uh, Bryant uh, and Dave uh, just last month returned from Turkey and uh, um, in order to explore another missionary possibility uh, with our church. And Nam and I just had a meeting with a missionary from Rome uh, a couple of weeks ago, exploring the possibility of a relationship there um, as well. It's important that we remember that the kingdom of God is beyond the, the borders of Emmanuel Bible Church, right? That there is a missions 
um, mandate for us as a church. You know, one of the great encouragements uh, of being an SBC church is seeing how our cooperative money is being used uh, to fund missionaries throughout the world. You know, uh, we got back from the SBC National Convention um, in in June uh, last month, um, and uh, this was was actually uh, my second one that I went to, but it's really my first because last year in Anaheim, if you remember, I got COVID on the very first day, and so I missed the whole thing, right, because of COVID. And so uh, this was really the first one I got to you know, be involved in for real, you know, from start to finish, got to vote and, and all of that. And uh, I have to say, it, it really blew my expectations away because I, I was thinking, man, some of this is going to be kind of boring, right? Like when you talk about some of the meeting stuff, and it really wasn't. The major- There was a little part that was, but the majority of it, the majority of it was incredibly encouraging. And uh, uh, just uh, uh, from the first thing we went to, uh, was, I can't tell you how uplifting and exhilarating it was to see the things that we are doing as Southern Baptists. And um, one of the highlights for me at the convention this year was watching the 79 missionaries that were sent off from their respective churches, some of whom their identities had to be hidden. You, you just saw, saw a silhouette of them because of the countries that they were being sent to. You got a chance to hear from everyone for just a brief minute to hear where they were from and why they were going and all of that. And, you know, I didn't know a single one of the 79 missionaries being sent out. But how satisfying to know that IBC had a hand in funding each and every one of those missionaries as an SBC church. Something incredibly uh, encouraging about that. And I do hope in the future that there are some of you who are sitting here this morning will be a part of that group being sent out. Uh, and what a joy it would be to be part of that and see other churches, thousands of people being able to send you out as well. I'm also grateful for guys here like TJ and, and, and Chris and even Grace who's leaving today, you know, uh, and others who, at the local level, faithfully go out on Saturdays to share the gospel on campuses at UCLA. That's part of missions and evangelism. They prioritize what they've been called to do. You know, we shouldn't miss the emphasis on prayer in the last part of the verse. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This, may sound, this sounds like a purpose statement, but it's really a parallel statement with the previous one. What is the means of gospel fruitfulness? In other words, conversions to Christ? It's simple, prayer in Jesus' name. Christians are not left to themselves without the necessary resources. Abiding, abiding in Christ and praying in his name will bring about the desired results in reference to the mission. This is the third of four passages, by the way, in which Jesus makes a promise in relation to prayer here in the Gospel of John. You've already seen the other two, but let's uh, refresh our memories. Remember John 14, 13 to 14? Whatever you ask in my name, that's not a formula, right? Like, like a magician would do or something like that or an incantation, right? But asking in the authority in the name of Christ, what is consistent with the person of Christ, this I will do. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, consistent with who I am, in my authority, I will do it. We also remember a short time ago, John 15, 7 to 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this my father, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Notice that in all of these cases, the promise is conditional. Asking in Christ's name, Abiding in Christ and his word are the necessary conditions for Jesus to answer your prayers affirmatively, right? And in this passage, in our passage here this morning, the two conditions necessary are the disciples carrying out their missionary mandate and praying in Jesus' name. All right, let's bring it home here. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We come back full circle to the conclusion of this section, the bookend to verse 12. Again, this helps the reader to treat these statements together and not to view them as separate individual verses, which we tend to do sometimes, right? What are the these things in verse 17? Well, it probably points to all the commands that Jesus has given in this discourse and sums them up together for a single purpose that believers will love each other. So how do the branches, believers, remain in Jesus, the vine? Well, the answer is simple. Through obedience to Jesus. A prominent command that has come up time and time again, not only in this section, but throughout John's gospel, is for believers to love one another. But you know what? It's an emphasis that is also found in other prominent New Testament texts as well. Let's take a look at a couple of those. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Most of us are familiar with, with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's popularly described as what? The love chapter, right? That's how we, we, we know it. But look at the exaggerated example that Paul gives in order to see his point on the importance of love. He says, look, even if I had the gift of prophecy par excellence, meaning that I have knowledge that essentially is equal to God, right? I know all mysteries and all knowledge. There's nothing that gets past me. And I have supernatural faith that could literally move mountains. But if I do not exercise those spiritual gifts in love, what does he say? I'm, I am nothing. You know, that's the worst possible thing that could be said about someone. You know, there's a lot of bad things that you can call a person, right? You idiot, right? 
or you're stupid, or you're junk. I've been called all of those things, by the way, at, at one time or another, right? But to be called nothing is tantamount to saying, you know what, you're worthless. You know what, you're a zero, right? Well, that's what Paul says about himself. If he possessed all the spiritual gifts to the highest degree, but did not have the necessary attribute of love that are essential to their operation, right? And so this verse clearly teaches us that spiritual gifts don't make a person spiritual, right? And by the way, I think we all know this, we don't have spiritual gifts to this degree, to this exaggerated degree. We're far less than that. And so the benefits, even in in, in what we can do, certainly are not even on the table here. Consider yourself as you minister your gift here at IBC. Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for the Lord? You know, if it's for the Lord, it will be based on his love and also ministered in his love. But if it's for self, it'll be based on your pride and it will be self-glorifying, right? And uh, eventually, um, you and everyone else uh, we'll, we'll see that. It'll be revealed eventually. That kind of ministry is worthless and it, it needs to be repented of. And I, and, and I think all of us at some point or another fall into that because of our sin. But now if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to say that even if he himself were to give away all his possessions to feed the poor and sacrifices his very life as well. Now that could mean a couple of different things. It could mean he becomes a slave for the sake of others or that he dies on behalf of others. But either way, whatever that is, it's self-sacrifice. If he didn't have the proper motivation of love, again, it did him no good. Notice the change here though. From I am nothing to I gain nothing. In other words, even the apostle Paul himself would gain no spiritual reward in this life or the next if he is devoid of a loving heart. Think of the dramatic contrast between the totality of the self-sacrificial gift that he mentions here as opposed to the absolute worthlessness of the personal benefit to Paul. And then I think you could see his point that he's trying to make. These sacrifices... They'll certainly benefit other people, but they won't do a thing for Paul, right? Because in God's eyes, they're they're worthless, right? 1 John chapter 3, 17 to 18 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You know, earlier we looked at verse 16, and now I want to end with verses 17 to 18 as our gospel writer, the same gospel writer who wrote, uh, you know, uh, this gospel presents a practical example of unloving behavior. Look, there, there may be an opportunity that God gives to you wherein you have the ability to meet another believer's physical needs. We're talking about their real needs, their basic necessities, and for whatever reason, you close your heart against that person. 
This means that you slam the door of your heart to that person because you have no mercy or compassion to want to help that person. Well, as we discussed in our passage, Jesus demonstrated the greatest amount of love possible by giving his life for us. And yet, we can't even find it in our hearts to, be, to meet the basic necessities of a believer? That doesn't make any sense, does it? There's a disconnect there. There's an inconsistency. That's the point that John wants us to see. And so he asks this rhetorical question. How does God's love abide in that person? Right? Asking the question this way is meant to show the shocking disparity between his professed faith in Christ and his lack of love for his brother in need. It's also meant for the reader to question his own heart and see whether his profession is real or not. Are you just having a bad day? Or is this really the pattern of your life? Listen, if you regularly find yourself unwilling to meet the needs of fellow believers in Christ, then you may want to question whether you really know the Lord or not. That's a big disconnect. Making excuses like you're too busy might just be a cover to who you really are, to what your real identity is. This is one of John's tests of life that appear throughout this uh, epistle of 1 John. But, you know, rather than end on a negative note, let's end with a positive exhortation. Let us love, I'm sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love as modeled in Jesus isn't something that is mere sentimentality, right? This is what we started with, mainly consisting of mushy words, right? No, the love that comes from God is active, it's tangible. It does something, right? God so loved the world, the world that he gave, right? Love acts. Indeed and in truth means that there will be sincere action, not works done out of obligation or grudgingly. Oh, I'll do it because I have to do it. Oh, I don't want to love, but I don't love. No, we're urged to put our love into action. And that our heart will be sincerely fueling those actions. Because that love motivation comes from our relationship with God. You know, I challenge you this week to look for opportunities to meet the, the um, needs of others, uh, both big and small, and to love others in a way that will please our Lord. You know, there are certainly opportunities galore in and, in and through our church, right? So take the time to make your faith active and seek to love others even when it's inconvenient to do so. Initiate a conversation with someone you don't know very well. Pray for others, even those that you might not uh, have a relationship with. Pray through the membership uh, you know, directory. And uh, you come to someone, you don't know them, pray for them. And then try to get to know that person. Talk to a deacon to get involved in one of our ministries that you could serve the body of Christ. And I, I just say, there is nothing more Christian that you can do than loving others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open the word this morning. Pray for our people, for all of us collectively, Lord, 
that you'll convict our hearts to live out our faith so that we won't just be talkers, but we'll be doers of the word and that we'll love you and love others. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.